0: Good to see you. Welcome. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Joel and we are in the book of Matthew. So if you've got your Bible with you, perhaps you turn with me to Matthew and chapter 12. Uh, In a moment, we're going to have the first 21 verses of uh, Matthew chapter 12 read to us. Um, This is a... Helpful uh, example of how rest can actually be turned into labour. What we look forward to as a time of um, rest and relaxation and replenishment can in the end be a heavy, wearying time of work. It can be uh, busy and frustrating. And that's the opposite of the the point. And so uh, this is a good example of how that can happen and uh, we're gonna learn from it and we're gonna see how it applies to our lives because God wants to give you rest. He wants you to be well rested and uh, he actually insists on it and we're gonna see how that works out in this story. So Matthew chapter 12 and the first 21 verses will come up on the screen now.
1: At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God. And ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you? Who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, (laughs) nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope.
0: pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to behold him now by opening our eyes. Lord, we would be blind without the help of your Holy Spirit, and we ask for him to come alongside and show us things in your word. Reveal them powerfully. We want to see Jesus, and we want to be changed. Would you just ask that for yourself now? Just say, Lord, please speak to me even if you're not used to praying say in your heart say god if you're there please speak to me in jesus name amen so uh, life is really about what you spend your time beholding what you spend your time looking at what you're preoccupied by that's surely the biggest differentiation the biggest decision what are you what are you Easily distracted by what do you look at? And behold, what 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 gets your attention? In in two places, I notice in the story we have people being asked to look at something. Uh, early on in the story, the, the, these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these religious teachers, coming to Jesus and saying, "Look, look at your disciples." And then later on, at the very end of the passage, we get God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Matthew quoting him, saying, "Look at my servant. Look at Jesus. Look at my son." What do we look at? What are we obsessive about? I notice when I uh, inspect my newsfeed on my phone um, from time to time uh, that the the things it wants to draw my attention to can seem to get steadily more puerile and trivial. Maybe it's just me getting older, but maybe it is that as a society we're degenerating in terms of what it is we think worthy of our attention. That's what news is, right? News is, look, look at this. This is what you should be looking at right now. I'm telling you what's important. Here it is, the news. Again and again and again, I'm, I'm told, I'm demanded to look at something that increase, I think, is, is, this, is this worth my attention? Is it, is it really a priority? Apparently it is. Look, behold, look, somebody did something naughty. Somebody said something they shouldn't have. Somebody, somebody got caught doing something. Oh, oh, look, 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 oh, all of us stop and look. You see, the culture of our time in that respect perhaps isn't that different to what I see in this story because it it, it can seem, if if we don't look at it honestly, and we should read our Bible thoughtfully, we we should see something of an absurdity going on here. You've got grown men, you've got got qualified teachers of the law, respected characters in, in, in Galilee and Judea, who are presumably crouching down behind ears of corn for a good solid sort of three quarters of an hour waiting for the moment to spring and say, Jesus, I just saw your disciples, Mm, those people that you have hanging around you, they were taking bits of corn and rubbing them together and eating them. Um, I'm telling if you're a parent, you know how this feels, you know, how Jesus feels right now. If you're a school teacher, you know how Jesus feels right now. You, you've seen this kind of behavior repeatedly. Here it is. Um ooh, ooh. It's kind of what, what what have you- It's far more ridiculous that you have been presumably hiding as a bunch of guys. It's like paparazzi in the rosebush. That's it's exactly the same thing. In the shrubbery, you know, these kind of. These kind of behaviours, they persist, don't they? And, and what's driving it? What's the concern? What's the issue here? Well, we need to perhaps investigate to, to understand it a little bit. We need to get inside the heads of these, these obsessive people. They, they are concerned about the transgressing of the Sabbath. So it's not that there's any theft going on. It was perfectly allowed for the, the people to glean Ears of corn. There was, you know, there's no service stations, there's no coffee houses. If you're travelling from one place to another, you're allowed to take a few bits of grain and eat them on the way. It's even stipulated in the, in the books of the law. But the Sabbath, you don't do that on the Sabbath. This is the seventh day. We, we tend to think of Sunday as the holy religious day. For them, it would have been Saturday, the seventh day. And they were transgressing the Sabbath. Now, we need to just get our heads around this the, the, the Bible on the first page has God creating the world in six days and then resting on the seventh. And then when you get to the book of Exodus, where it talks about God rescuing his special people, his chosen nation, Israel, the tribes of Israel, from slavery, when he institutes the law, he deliberately he legislates that they should have a day of rest every week. He insists on it strictly. And so the the Jewish race from that time onwards is called upon as an act of piety to observe the Sabbath. Now, God enforces it because if you've just rescued a nation from slavery, you're going to have to force them to rest. They've got no patterns of rest. They've got no concept of rest. They've been slaves. And so God speaks very firmly about it. You will rest on the seventh day. He's, he's absolutely insistent. And it's, it's a, a way of marking out their commitment to obey him. Okay, we will rest. And so there's a sense in which it's a kind of enforced holiday. It's good for their, their health, their emotional health, their physical health, their mental health to stop. Literally the word means stop. Sabbath. Cease. Stop. It's hard to get slaves to stop if they've been slaves all the years. So God insists on it. But then generations later, what's happened? By the time Jesus starts his public ministry in Galilee and Judea, you've got people like these teachers of the law who have become OCD about it. And I'm, I'm hardly exaggerating. They've got volumes. They've got tomes. That the Talmudic writings include 24 chapters, and these are big chapters, on how to keep the Sabbath. 24. And somebody spent... One of the rabbis spent two and a half years trying to expound one of those chapters. So you could literally spend a lifetime trying to do justice to this concept of the Sabbath. If you wanted to be a pious, observant, faithful worshipper of Yahweh, you you were going to be in for Some seriously meticulous obedience when it comes to the seventh day of the week, and some of the rules that, if I could list them, if I could remember them all right now, and just even a smattering of them, some of them you'd find funny. I mean, literally, you'd laugh. That that was some of them are absurd. But they're not just absurd; they are extremely limiting. You couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. You couldn't uh, you couldn't uh, pick up a, 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 an object that was heavier uh, than, than a certain weight. You, you couldn't you couldn't put something, pick something up in one place and put it down in the wrong other. But the levels of, of obedience that become bizarre when you read it you see that it's kind of absurd but what it comes from is a I suppose a certain kind of fear a certain kind of impersonal fear (laughs) perhaps not really aware even of what they're frightened of but just knowing we've got to keep the sabbath we must keep the sabbath and in order to not transgress the sabbath we're going to put a few more rules in front of the sabbath if you touch that fence you'll get hurt, so we're going to put another fence in front of it. Then we're going to put another fence in front of that. Then we're going to put another fence in front of that. Then we're going to put another fence in front of that. And then we're going to put another fence in front of that. I'm not exaggerating. It was that level. So many layers of legislation in order to somehow protect us from the worst possible scenario where we would actually transgress the Sabbath. So something that was given by God for a purpose of enforcing rest because of a generous-hearted God who wanted his people to learn the rhythms of rest and learn from the necessity, learn to understand how to do life well, has turned instead into something literally exhausting. This is meant to be restful, and it's become wearying, so that by the time it's like the Sabbath is the next day, it's like, oh no, Sabbath tomorrow, I find the Sabbath really tiring. I find it really exhausting. I hate the Sabbath. Imagine kids growing up in Galilee and Judea. Just, oh no, is it Sabbath tomorrow? Oh no, not Sabbath. And this, this heavy pressure seems to be kept, enforced by these heavily legalistic teachers of the law who, who love to put the pressure on other people and love to watch to see, oh, is anybody not keeping it? Is anybody out there not keeping it? Who can we catch this week? Who can we find this week who might have fallen short of the Sabbath demands? (laughs) Just the delicious prospect of finding someone stepping outside the line. thats what it's all for. That's the fun of it. And it's into this very world that Jesus comes saying in the passage literally just before this one, the end of chapter 11. Come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. For the yoke that I give is easy and my burden is light. Explosive, isn't it? When you think about the context, you realise why Jesus' words must have just bounced off every wall. Wow, wow, the echo must have just gone across the land. Did he he say what I think he said? He's comparing himself to all these teachers of law. He's saying, take my yoke upon you. The teaching of a a, a rabbi would have been understood in those terms. A yoke, a harness, a burden. You, You come under someone's yoke. Jesus is saying, I've seen the yokes these Pharisees give you. I've seen their rest. I've seen their Sabbath. Let me introduce you to my Sabbath. Jesus comes saying, I I know how to get rest. That's what I've come to offer. I've come to give you rest. I've come to give you rest. Did you know that about Jesus? Have you understood that about him, about his mission, about his very character? He longs to do it. And of course the community that he he launched, these disciples and the disciples they discipled and the disciples they discipled and the churches of disciples that multiplied around the world were characterised by this genuine atmosphere of rest. And it wasn't because of the Sabbath. This is the counterintuitive thing. They did not practise the Sabbath in the way that their Jewish forebears had. In the New Testament, the Sabbath is not reiterated. It's not. In fact, the New Testament seems to deconstruct the Sabbath. So in in a couple of places, especially in Galatians and Colossians, in letters written to churches, you've got the Apostle Paul saying, look, be really careful of people who are strict Sabbatarians. In fact, listen, one day is just as holy as another. That's Paul saying that. A Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul who was brought up so strictly on the Jewish law. But he's prepared to say, so listen, listen, I want you guys, the churches I plant, I'm, I'm sniffing out any Sabbathness. I don't like the sound of that. I don't like the smell of that. I don't like any of this, this kind of weird, kind of cultic fascination with one day over another. Be really careful about that, Paul's saying. The thing that he's most concerned about is to set Christians free from a legalistic application of the Sabbath. You say, yeah, if people want to celebrate the Sabbath, that's all right. I don't mind them doing it, but the only thing I won't have is them putting pressure on other Christians to do the same. Isn't that interesting? So the New Testament seems to have a very different attitude than we might expect. Now, from time to time through church history, people have ignored that, like we do often with the Bible ignored the fact that the apostles of the New Testament released the churches from the Sabbath and said no you should still have the Sabbath because I found it in the law and they don't look at the law through Jesus, they don't look at it through the New Testament and they start getting strict again but weirdly not about the Sabbath, they do it about Sunday instead which isn't the Sabbath but never mind. So, so it's happened in various ways through history. Most of us here in this room will, will not have been affected by that. Some of you, generations, some of you who've got a few more years to you, you might have some stories. I remember a, a pastor that I uh, was uh, church that I was at when I, when I was a student, uh, and uh, he was, uh, uh, he'd had experience this way. He, he was not allowed to have ice cream on a Sunday. Or not allowed to go swimming on a Sunday. Various things like that. Even my dad had experiences of filling up his motorbike, or his motor scooter. It was a mod, not a rocker. With, uh, with, with petrol. And a, and a Christian from the church coming by and seeing him putting petrol in the bike. And being very cross with him. It's the Sabbath. How could you do it? It's peculiar, isn't it? Now most of us, we're not you know, wrestling with that. That's not a big, big thing you need rescuing from. But you do... Need nevertheless to see the principle here that Jesus has come to release us from the burden of religious laws that don't express the heart of God. So this is a, this is why his his treatment of the Pharisees here is so instructive and so important. So let's look at how he handles this this situation here. He says first of all he's he says first of all Have you not read? what it says in the Old Testament. So he talks about three examples. He talks about David taking the showbread from the altar when the priests were looking after him when he was on the run from King Saul. The second example he gives is that the priests themselves who serve in the temple, who are instructed to work and serve on the Sabbath because the temple's got to work on the Sabbath like any other day, Jesus is saying, "Therefore, are you going to say the priests are profaning the Sabbath? Hmm. And then the third example is Hosea chapter six verse six, one of the prophets, where God says, "I desire mercy and not sacrifice." Now, if there were time, we could unpack each of these three quotations he's taking but that the net impact of this is Jesus is saying if you read your Old Testament properly you'd understand the heart of the person that wrote it. You'd understand the heart of the author and you'd understand the purpose for which things like the Sabbath were given. You'd understand that they express the heart of a God who doesn't delight in outward external acts of ritual sacrifice, half so much as he delights in our hearts of mercy and love for people and looking to release people from bonds and chains of slavery and legalism. That's the God who wrote the law. And you haven't really met him yet, have you? Even though, presumably you've read your Bible, it's a little sarcastic and cheeky of Jesus to say, have you not read about David, because these are the guys that <laughs> they, they'd read. They, they would have been able to quote it backwards. They were, they were teachers of the law. That was their whole identity. How dare you say, have we not read? I'm sure that's how they felt when he said things like this. He's making a point. Of course, you've read it. I know you've read it. I know you, you know this stuff. You've memorized this stuff from childhood. You know you can regurgitate it all, but you don't know the God that's behind it. You don't really know what it means. You, don't, you haven't met him. I'm thinking of an illustration of, of this. I, imagine if uh, parents uh, left the house and left the children to some friends who, who babysat for a few days and so said, Look after the kids, look after the house. And uh, they've got books on bookshelves. And, uh, and the, the, the kids, about halfway through the week, they start taking books off the bookshelves and reading them. And the the house sitter or the babysitter gets really nervous. Don't don't touch the books. Your your parents, those are their books. They're very special. You've got to look after them. them I'm house sitting. I feel responsible for the house. So please, don't don't touch the books. Whatever you do, don't touch them. Now, I, I, I hope this is a helpful example because... What you've got there is someone missing the point. Of course the parents care about the books. They're their property and books are special. But the day my kids ever voluntarily go to the bookshelf and take something off and look at it, I don't need a holiday for 10 years if that ever happens. I won't go away. I'll come back and sing and dance for a week. I will run up and down the stairs L- laughing and singing with flowers in my non existent hair until you will you know, call an ambulance because, because that's, that's what the books are for. That's what they're there for. They're for kids to read and get off their phones with. That's what they're for. But if you say, oh no, don't touch, no, oh no, they're the master's books. Don't touch the master's books. You missed the point. Don't don't profane the Sabbath. God's God's will is that we should all feel awful once a week and come under a terrible burden of legalistic oppression because that's what he's like. Jesus is saying, you haven't read. You don't understand. You don't understand who he is or what he's like, do you? And here's the thing. The reason you don't understand who he is or what he's like is because you don't understand me. That's what Jesus is saying because he's not just talking about the writings, he's talking about himself. You notice, I mean, he says it in a few ways, but let me pick out probably the most dramatic, maybe the most controversial thing he could have said in this exchange. He says, near the end of his little speech, he says to them, Have you not read in the law how the Sabbath, the priests, and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. I tell you, he's talking to the teachers of the flipping law. He's talking to the pharaoh, talking to the the temple was everything to them. These are the big things, the, the Sabbath, circumcision, the keeping of the Torah, and the temple. Jesus is touching on all these things. And he's perhaps touching the most, at least in terms of its iconic status in their imagination. The temple, the place. The temple, the place where God dwells. The place where God dwells. Jesus is walking around in a barley field (laughs) with a bunch of retired fishermen and saying... Uh, I'm actually greater than the temple. If we don't understand that the shockwaves that statement was intended to produce would have gone across the land when he said it, we haven't read it properly. We haven't understood how dramatic this moment is. Something greater than the temple is standing in front of you. It's who I am. It's, a, it's, it's such a dramatic claim But it's with us today. We we need to understand the impact of it. And friends, we need today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to step into the good of it. Because Jesus here is saying, these guys that you're telling off and wagging your fingers at, these people you're doing your gotcha moment with, these people that you're behold oh look look at these yeah these these guys who are rubbing bits of grain together to just have a snack do you know who they are they're mine they're my priests you know those guys in the temple that work on the sabbath you wouldn't dream of criticizing them would you because they're the priests in the temple and they're exempt because they're in the presence of Yahweh you wouldn't wag your finger at them. You wouldn't go over to the temple on the Sabbath, even if it was within 3,000 feet, and, and try and criticise. Because they're the priests. They're, they're God's people in God's place. You say, listen, I'm the temple. I am the dwelling place of God. And all these things... All these things that you honour apparently so much, you don't understand them until you understand that They were there to point to me. Jesus isn't saying, well, I don't really care about the temple. God, God's changed his mind. He, he doesn't care about the Sabbath. He's changed his mind. He instituted these things, but he gave up on them. He just got bored. The Sabbath, that's old. That's passé. That's boring. That's for sad people. I'm introducing something new, you religious, stuck-up People. No, no, that's not his heart. He's saying, the Sabbath, good. The temple, good. The sacrificial system, good. The priests, good. Why are they good? They're all good because they point to something gooder. They point to Jesus. That's what they're there for. The Sabbath points to the one who brings eternal rest. The one who's able to stand before the world and say, come to me, you'll never know such rest as what I give you'll never know such relief from shame and guilt and oppression you'll never know such freedom from the disdainful eyes and wagging tongues of critics and tweeters and and people who've have you seen what she's into now have you heard about them and various Facebook flame wars that make you feel like, am I on the wrong side in this situation have I done the wrong thing have I said the wrong thing am I allowed am I in or am I out Am I acceptable? Friends, we haven't moved that far. The the way in which legalism oppresses us may have changed. Not many Sabbatarians in the room, but the fact that it still does hasn't changed. Because in some way or another, you will be tempted all your life to live under the oppressive influence of other people's projected opinions on your behaviour. That, and that will be the rule that you'll find yourself living by, or at least tempted to, all the time. So how do we handle that? How do we, how do we come away from, from just coming under the pressure of that? How do, we, how do we find freedom from that? And we are called to have freedom from it. We're called to know liberty from it. We need to see Jesus. We do. We, we need to see Jesus. Why? Because, because listen, Jesus... Jesus is the one who really brings the presence of God now. Jesus is the one who is the true temple, the presence of God. Jesus himself, the walking temple. The temple was good, but it's still locked up in one place. And you had to go through layers and layers of ritual to get into the holiest place, and only one person could go in there every year anyway. And how you have this temple walking on the streets of, of Galilee and Judea, forgiving people, healing the sick. You have what it was all about in the first part of the Bible where God walked with the man and the woman in the call cool of the day. That's what the temple was about, a garden where God would walk with people. Jesus is saying, I'm breaking out of the temple into barley fields. <laughs> Into places where they just just a bit is that just it's just a mundane place. It's just a field. It's not just a field if Jesus is with you. If Jesus is walking with you, everywhere becomes a temple, right? Your workplace, your car, when you're changing nappies, when you're getting the breakfast ready, when you're doing your homework, when you're finishing an essay, when you're sending an email when you're worrying about something, when you're praying about something, you're struggling with something, having a difficult relationship or an argument or where you're going through a, a worry with your health, where you're getting a report from the, from the medics, where you're, you're, you're wondering about the next week or the month after that, every situation becomes a place where the presence of God can go with you because Jesus has come saying, I, I am the temple, I'm with you as God amongst you, I'm Emmanuel, God with us, changes everything. It changes everything. We need to catch up with this, this way bigger plan that God has and thereby be set free from the petty trivialities of religious backbiting and incrimination and watching. Who's, who's transgressing? Who's blown it this week? We need to see Jesus. This is why Paul says later on in the letter to the Colossians, listen to this, I sometimes think, I wonder if Paul had this very story in mind when he wrote the letter to the Colossians. Because there's so many links between them. He says this, listen to me, please listen. All of you, listen. If you say Jesus is your saviour, listen to this. He says this, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath? What are the things that you can get past judgment? Maybe in your workplace. Maybe the things that everyone's got to do this now. You're not allowed to eat that now. You shouldn't be eating that, those kinds of foods. You shouldn't be doing that. We've got a generation growing up more and more nervous, more and more worried about, oh, am I not allowed to say, not allowed to touch, not allowed to eat? It's, I know it's not really... I know it's secular but it's very religious deep down because it comes from the same heart. It's it's fearful and it's controlling. And Paul says, don't let it happen to you. You live free. Jesus has called you to freedom. He says, "In in these matters, don't let anyone pass judgment on you. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Jesus, the head of the body, is the one that nourishes us, strengthens us. The things that we do, whether it's trying to keep strict rules like the Sabbath or whatever other little rules that we might feed into our religious life, they have no power to change the heart but to see Jesus, your faithful high priest who cares for you, who protects you from the voice of accusation, who loves you, who is committed to you in your failings and weaknesses and mistakes of which I know there are so many To see Him has the power to change your heart, doesn't it? As you see and know Him, we're changed. Slowly but surely, we're changed from one degree of glory to another. You've got to be sure of Him. He he knows that these disciples are real. He knows their weaknesses, right? It's not like he's saying, how dare you criticise my disciples. I picked them very carefully. They're all very qualified and very impressive. I've seen, have you seen their CVs? I went through, they went through a very stringent interview process. And I, actually, they got through a very difficult exam. And that's why they're here. No. He knows that they're all failures. He knows. He knows, he knows they're going to do terrible things. He knows that the best of them are going to run away when he gets arrested. They're going to deny that they even knew him. They're going to squabble about who's the greatest. They're going to tell the children to go away and not bother Jesus. They just constantly make mistakes. They're just the 12 disciples. They're just like you and me. But Jesus defends them. Do you see this? Jesus protects them from the voice of who? The accuser. The Bible talks about this person, the accuser of the brothers, Jesus knows who he is. These Pharisees coming and accusing, they're just a mouthpiece for someone much more powerful, much more wicked. They've just become a voice of accusation. And friends, listen to me. Some of you, you know exactly how this feels because there are voices of accusation coming against you, maybe in your workplace, maybe slander, maybe gossip, maybe people in your family have misunderstood you and turned on you. And when you hear a voice of accusation, especially from someone you respect, whose opinion you care about, it can cripple you can bring you under a terrible sense of obligation. Terrible sense that I've got, oh, I can't get out of this ditch. I've got, to, I've got to impress them again. I've got to get back into their books. I'm here to tell you, you haven't. You haven't got to. You have a saviour who is praying for you, interceding for you. He's your advocate and you're joined with him. He's your head, you're part of his body. You He's jealous for you. This is one of the few places where Jesus shows his teeth, if you like. It's interesting. It's interesting that Matthew carries on with, with that quote from Isaiah and he uses these phrases. He's, a, he's like a bruised reed, a bruised reed he will not break, a smouldering wicker will not quench. And he says this, he will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not, anyone won't hear his voice in the streets. What's he saying? Matthew's saying, Jesus, Jesus wasn't an argumentative person. He wasn't a quarreller. He wasn't. He, this isn't question time. It's not a flame war. He's the sort of guy that would just, no, I'm not getting involved. If you want to have a stupid argument, I'm not interested. He doesn't get involved in dumb arguments. He doesn't care about them. But he does show his teeth when the accuser comes after his disciples. Have you ever seen a person like that? You can't get them angry. You ever known someone like that? They're just very mild. But when they do get angry, if you notice, you take it quite seriously. You feel, oh wow, oh gosh, you do get angry sometimes. That's what Jesus is like. And what does he get angry about? When the accuser comes after his children and his brothers and sisters. Do you understand how jealous he is for you? Do you understand if you belong to Jesus, you belong to someone who fights for you, who, who chooses and loves you and doesn't want you under a yoke of oppressive, am I allowed to, should I, should I cross that? Oh gosh, have I done, have I done the wrong thing? Friends, we can easily live there, can't we? But I have a saviour who says, I'll come to give you rest. I'll come to give you rest. Do you understand? It's what he's like. Do you see Jesus? Isn't he good? He's so good. We're going to, in a moment, come to the table and take bread and wine and receive from him again. And sing to him and rejoice in him. This is what our hearts need, isn't it? I love the way, let me just finish with this. this is, I love this. Jesus, Jesus knows that they've ruined the best illustration of who he is. God gives the nation the Sabbath and says, you're going to love what the Sabbath is about. The Sabbath is just an advert. That's what God does in the Old Testament. I'm going to give you this thing called the Sabbath. And it's like, I can't wait till you're going to love the Sabbath, but you're going to love my son even more. He's even better than the Sabbath. But I'll give you the Sabbath for now, just as a trailer, just to get your appetite wetted. By the time Jesus comes along, religious people have ruined the advert, ruined the whole thing. The brand is tainted. So Jesus comes along and saying, I'm the new Sabbath. I can imagine people saying, I don't want you then. Isn't that what religion does? It's poisonous. Come to church. No, I I don't really like religion. Well, no, that's, I, I want you to meet Jesus. i was yeah, I brought up in a religious... No, I'm not, I don't, I'm not interested in it. Maybe that's your experience. No, I'm not all that sure. I don't, I've had bad experiences of religion. I don't like religion. Ugh. The brand is ruined, isn't it? They spoiled it, these religious people. It's like I mean, a couple of weeks ago. Last week, I got taken on... A, two different people took me on two different lifts in their Skodas. and and, you know a Skoda these days is a decent car it's got a VW engine it's the same as a VW but it's 20% cheaper it's the same because the brand is rubbish the brand is ruined do you see religion ruins Jesus Jesus is not religion Jesus is not I'm serious he's not He's better than you think. He's so much better. He's, he's peace, his life, his rest, his joy, his hope, he's pleasure evermore. He's forgiveness for the past. He's hope for the future. He's with you in the present. It's who he is? You say, oh, "I'm so guilty. I'm so ashamed." He show you his scars. That's why He's it, gone. Do you not know who he's, what he's like? We need to see what he's like, don't we? We need to see him again. Oh God, help us to see your son, Jesus. And he, he comes into this synagogue. He says, you've ruined you've ruined the Sabbath. Let me show you what it's really like. And they bring a man with a withered hand. <laughs> and they say, oh, are you allowed to? It's outrageous. Are you allowed to heal people on the Sabbath? That's what religion does? We'd rather have this man with a withered hand. Then have this man proved right. It's outrageous. Jesus says, well, you tell me, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Okay, I'll break the Sabbath and do good. And he says, stretch out your hand, the man's healed. Jesus is saying, listen, let me show you what the Sabbath is about. It's about healing. It's about healing. Do you know that? Jesus heals. Some of us, we've no idea how much he loves to heal. Let's pray right now, shall we? Perhaps some musicians come and join me. Jesus, we, just, we, we confess that we have, in our minds at least, we've spoiled your reputation. We've believed lies about you. God, we, we just say, help us to catch up with who you are. Remember how good you are not reduce you to our trashy trivialities. Lord, help us to behold, not not the transgressions of others. Oh, God, forgive us. Oh, Lord, can we all just do that in our hearts? Just some of you, you've spent so much of this week just dwelling on other people's mistakes, just dwelling on how they didn't do what they should. and Just say, God, I'm sorry. Just bring it to him. Your husband is a bit, just wasn't a very good husband this week, your wife, or whatever, just stuff that, or your kids, or just, God, forgive me. Forgive me, Lord, just help me. I behold, I'm beholding all those things. Look, look, look at what they've done. Jesus, we want to behold you. We want to behold you right now in your goodness and your grace. Be set free to forgive and love just as we've been forgiven and loved. To accept, to be patient, to be forbearing, to be agents of mercy, to not break a bruised reed, snuff out a smoking candle, to be gentle, teach us your ways, teach us your ways in Jesus' name. We'll Take bread and wine, we'll, we'll remember who he is and what he's done, come to the table as soon as you're ready and uh, uh Draw near to him in your heart as you do so. Let's stand together and worship God.